0: name. Amen. We are entering into a new Wednesday evening series on heaven entitled Heaven is Our Eternal Home. Tonight the focus is eternity past and the heavens and we're going to go to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 in the first two verses. When we ask that question, is there life after death? most people even in this atheistic type culture that we are in still believe that there is there's the old painting michelangelo's painting the last judgment which is an interesting depiction of it on the left there's a swirl of saints and martyrs that are ascending heavenward uh, their faces a mixture mixture of joy and shock uh, they're flanked by the figure of the risen christ And on the right, uh, it's a decidedly downward trend, a slightly more populated mix of eternal unfortunates who are being dragged, pushed, and hurled into the abyss. I read a study that was out just a few years ago. It was entitled, uh, Fewer Americans Believe in God, Yet They Still Believe in the Afterlife. Let me share with you a few things that that study uh, revealed In recent years, fewer Americans prayed, believed in God, took the Bible literally, attended religious services, identified as religious, affiliated with a religion, or had confidence in religious institutions. In fact, in the late 1980s, only 13% of U.S. adults expressed serious doubts about the existence of God. And one part of this study said uh, that people responded, I don't know whether there is a God, and I don't believe there's any way to find out. And the younger group was particularly in that camp with the numbers rising. And while 15% of adults said they were not religious at all, uh, in 1998, that number had gone up by 30% by 2014. Not even 20 years had passed. The Pew Research Center did some surveys in 2018 and 2019. In those studies, 65% of American adults described themselves as Christians when asked about their religion, which we know is uh, way high from reality, but that number was down 12% in less than a decade. Meanwhile, the religiously unaffiliated share of the population, those who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, now stands at almost 30%, somewhere between 25 and 30%, uh, almost doubled in the last 10 or 11 years. But what was interesting about it is that while fewer people said they believed in religion, or they had more questions about God, the numbers of people who believed in an afterlife remain fairly steady. That Pew study went on to say it's natural for people to want things to turn out well in the end. Roughly seven, in 10 per, uh, seven out of 10 Americans say they believe in heaven, where people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. Of course, we know that's not the gospel. But that's the mentality of a lot of people. If you do good things, you're going to go to whatever your idea of heaven is. We also hear commonly the uh, epitaph, rest in peace. And you'll see RIP uh, all over the internet when anybody pretty much dies. Uh, The phrase was interestingly found on tombstones somewhere around the 5th century. And it became more common on Christian tombs uh, by the 18th century. But the reality is we know that everybody is not going to rest in peace. There's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of confusion about death and the afterlife. And I want us to go to the Bible for our answers. A few years ago, I did a study on Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. And we pretty much patterned that discipleship study after that book. But I'm going in a totally different direction with this particular study. And my prayer is that our confidence and our faith in God will grow as we cover some very pertinent subjects uh, that will help us have a better understanding. J.C. Ryle said the man who's about to sail for Australia or New Zealand as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home, its climate, its employments, its inhabitants, its ways, and its customs. All these are subjects of deep interest to him. You're leaving the land of your nativity. You're going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire to know about your new abode. Now surely if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, Ryle says, even a heavenly one, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it before we go to our eternal home We should try to become acquainted with it. So here's some subjects we're going to cover in the coming weeks. And I may expand as I go along, so don't hold me to these specifically. uh, But we'll cover these at a minimum and maybe even more as we move forward. Tonight we're thinking about eternity past and the heavens. And we're going to ask the question, what was God doing before creation? What are the three heavens and from where does God rule? We're going to cover next the concept of heaven in the Old Testament. We're going to think about Sheol and how that fits into the afterlife and why it was that in the Old Testament, uh, the teaching about the afterlife was more general, even though there are a lot of specifics about heaven and about where God is. And uh, we're going to look at the, an Old Testament overview, basically. And then we're going to look at the greatest blessing of heaven which is the presence of god the greatest gift of all of being reconciled to the god who made us and being in his presence forever and then we're going to think about what happens at death and how do we understand what happens at death what happens immediately when we draw our last breath on this earth what happens in terms of our bodies and what are we awaiting and what are we receiving and the Bible actually has quite a bit to say about that, and we're going to look at that because that certainly should be of interest to us. And one of the reasons I think it should be of interest to us is there are a lot of professing believers that live with a lot of fear. And I want you to know you don't have to live with fear. Yes, there's still an element of the unknown. There are things that we don't know, but God has given us so much that we can know with confidence that it should build our hope and our trust in him. And then we're going to think about the current heaven. What's it like in heaven now? What's going on in heaven? What are some of the activities that are uh, spoken of in the scripture that's going on in the current current heaven? And then the return of Jesus and the millennium. Will history as we know it actually end? What will the millennium be like? How will that be similar to the next subject, the new heavens and the new earth? How is there going to be a recreated new heavens and new earth, and what's that going to look like? And then we're going to get to the point that everybody probably thought we might be starting with tonight, and that is the heavenly city, because there is some incredible uh, descriptive language in the book of Revelation that talks specifically about the heavenly city and what we can uh, expect there, the new Jerusalem and all that goes along with that. And then what will heaven be like? Uh, Who will we be? What will our relationships be like? What will we be doing in heaven? I'm going to take one evening and just talk about some common misconceptions about heaven with some frequently asked questions. I'll probably give you the opportunity before I get to that to submit questions that you might have. And if there are any in there that I wasn't already planning on covering, uh, then I'll do my best to cover those as well. And then finally, the importance of getting ready for heaven how can you be sure that you're going to heaven what should your priorities and perspective in this life be so that you're preparing for the life to come so our text tonight is Genesis chapter 1 in the first 2 verses so let's read that together beginning in verse 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth now the earth was formless and empty darkness covered the surface and the watery depths and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. That's as far as I want to go, but I think this well sets the scene for the questions that I want to ask and answer. And the first question that I want to ask and answer tonight is, what was God doing before creation? Now, the Bible does not defend the existence of God, but rather it begins with the premise of the existence of God. That's very important because God communicates himself to us what he wants us to know about him. And if God did not reveal himself to us, we wouldn't have anything to go on. So to say it another way, we know about God what he chooses to reveal to us. So we begin with that premise that there is a God. And that's the premise that the Bible begins with. We also take the Bible as the inspired, inerrant, and sufficient Word of God, meaning that we believe it to be true. And when it gives us reality about God, it is right and it is true. When it gives us history, it is right and it is true. When it gives us prophecy, we can expect that it's going to come to pass It either has already come to pass and been fulfilled or will come to pass just as communicated in the scripture uh, because God can be trusted. And when it gives us instruction, that means that we ought to follow it because it tells us the best way to live. Henry Morris said the only way to interpret Genesis 1 is not to interpret it at all. That is, we accept the fact that it was meant to say exactly what it says. What we know about God, creation, ourselves, salvation, and the heavens begins in Genesis. Genesis provides for us the theological pillars on which the rest of the Bible stands. So let's look at this phrase by phrase, beginning in verse 1. The scripture says, in the beginning. Now these verses have traditionally been understood as referring to the actual beginning of matter, meaning that creation came out of nothing in the beginning. And it says here, in the beginning, God. The reference to God is to the triune God who was existing from eternity past. And I stated that that way for a reason. I didn't say merely that he existed from eternity past to confuse us and to think that in some way there was a beginning point for God, but instead that he was existing from eternity past, meaning that there has never been a time when he was not. In the beginning, as we know it, there was already God. Before there was as much as a material atom in the cosmos, there was God. Psalm 90 and verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now remember, the writer of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, at least for the most part, other than some editorial that is given to us about his death, and some other events, is none other than Moses. Moses is also connected to Psalm 90. And he's referencing for us that before creation, as we know it, was brought forth, or before God ever formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, he was God. Now, the word for God that is used here is Elohim. And it is one of the most common names for God in the Old Testament. And at its core, it is speaking of God's strength or his power. So we are speaking of the God who is infinite and who, who is all-powerful. Now, think about it this way. On the one hand, the Bible teaches that God is one. Uh, the declaration of Israel in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is is one. But on the other hand, God is three in person. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14 says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So here's the clearest way to think about the Trinity, even though there remains some mystery to it. God is one in essence And he is three in person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are co equal and co eternal. All three were active as one in creation. God the Father and God the Spirit are explicitly mentioned here in Genesis 1. And then we find several places in the New Testament where it references God the Son. John 1, being the most prominent of those probably, uh, reminding us that God the Son was the active agent in creation. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are who are referred to as Elohim in Genesis 1. Now the classic questions that come up often, uh, typically even from children, are uh, where did God come from? and who created God? The answer is, he is an uncreated being who is eternal, who is without beginning or end. J. Edwin Orr said, God is the only infinite, eternal, and unchanging spirit, the perfect being in whom all things begin and continue and end. Now, let me state here as well that if we could easily put God in a box and explain him where every logical conclusion was clear and plain and easy to explain, then he would cease to be God. And while we believe this to be true because it's what the Bible teaches, we also say that as we take that on faith, that there are some things that we in our finite minds cannot fully comprehend about an infinite God. Just because we and our finite minds cannot fully comprehend everything that there is to comprehend about an infinite God does not in any way reduce or even challenge the truth about who he is or these realities that we understand about him. In the beginning, God, the next word here in verse 1, is created. Created. The word created means created out of nothing. So God created everything that there is out of nothing. The verb here for create contains both the idea of effortlessness. Remember, he's Elohim, the all-powerful, infinite God. And ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. It is never created, it is never referenced, rather, Um, or connected with any statement of the material, it is speaking to us about the fact that this God who existed from eternity past and who is existing uh, always created all that there is out of nothing. So he did not take something that had been previously shaped or formed or made or created in some way and then just turn it into something else. He made something out of nothing, and only God is capable of doing that. Believing God's word, the writer of Hebrews gave it precise explanation. He said this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Moses' assertion that nothing existed before God spoke it into existence was an attack on the polytheism and the pantheism that his people had just escaped from. The word created is used only of God in the Bible. Only God creates. He created the universe. He created animate life. He created man. And specifically, the last part of verse 1 says, he created the heavens and the earth. Now we might understand this as the entire cosmos. Everything that there is to be created, God created. So this is an all-encompassing statement, not limited to one thing or limited to a few things, but simply stating that everything that has been made, everything that has been created, was created by God in the heavens and the earth. Now, I want you to think about the greatness of what God has done, even in a single galaxy. A typical galaxy contains billions of individual stars. Our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, contains 200 billion stars. Our galaxy is shaped like a giant spiral, rotating in space, with arms reaching out like a pinwheel. And our sun is one star on one arm of the pinwheel. It would take 250 million years for the pinwheel to make one full rotation. But this is only our galaxy. There are many other galaxies with many other shapes, including spirals and clusters and flat pancakes. The average distance between one galaxy and another is as much as 20 million trillion miles Our closest galaxy is about 12 million trillion miles away. And here's where the illustration goes. For every patch of sky the size of the moon, if you could look very deep, you would see about a million galaxies. This ought to put us in awe of who God is. God did all of this himself. Isaiah 48 and verse 13 says, Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. And yet God is bigger and greater than even the immensity of his creation. Isaiah 40 and verse 12 says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Are you looking for an intelligent designer? You have to look no further than Genesis 1 and verse 1. Nothing happens by chance. Now, what follows with this, if this is true, and I believe it to be, is that macroevolution, as it is taught and held, is incompatible with the Word of God. That's not my primary subject tonight, But I want to make that statement clear because if you take a position from the Bible to believe in God as the creator, as the designer, as the one who has made something out of nothing, you can't land on random chance processes that have brought us to the place of complexity that we are. So back to my question, what was God doing before creation? While we're not given details... What we know is that it is clear that God was active, he was all-knowing, and he was perfect in community, love, and glory as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There are numerous scripture passages that allude to this. The Holy Spirit in Genesis 1 is said to have hovered above the face of the deep. Jesus prayed in John 17 and verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me, watch this, before the foundation of the world. So I think the answer to this question is that before creation, God dwelt joyfully in eternity as the triune God. Everything else beyond that lies in the mystery of, of who God is. And then that takes me to the second question. What are the three heavens? Now, I want you to note here that we are going from a broad view down to a very, very specific view. Tonight's the broad view. We're going to be narrowing as we move forward, and then we're going to get down to some of those little details that everybody wants to know about heaven. But in order to do that, you need to have a broad understanding of what the Bible is teaching About heaven and how we ever got there uh, to that subject to begin with There's an interesting passage of scripture in 2nd corinthians chapter 12 Uh, Many of you will be familiar with it, but i'm going to begin reading in verse 2 These are the words of the apostle paul and i'm going to go through verse 5 He said I know a man in christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago 2nd corinthians 12 and verse 2 Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, body, I don't know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. And then he says, I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. The Apostle Paul described an experience uh, in the third person of the first person. And I think that he was speaking about himself because he transitions to the first person. When you get all the way over in verse 7, was he carried up in, the, in his body physically up into heaven? Or was he caught up in the spirit in heaven? We have no way of knowing. He wasn't even sure exactly what had taken place. He does not suggest different levels of heaven here, as some have tried to make it out to be. But instead, he's using common terminology about a situation where he was overwhelmed. He was given a glimpse into the glory of God in heaven. And I think part of the thorn in the flesh, as he communicates it, was specifically for the purpose of keeping him humble based on what he had experienced. And he doesn't want to boast about it, but he does want to say something about it. The word heaven is used in the sense of realms here. It's used in the sense of realms. The first heaven is the atmosphere of the earth and the sky. That was common language, that the first heaven was referencing the earth and the sky as we know it. The air that we breathe, the space that we live in, the, the region that uh, humans inhabit, that was the first heaven. The second heaven is what we might commonly refer to as outer space. That's what is beyond the earth as we know it. The third heaven is the presence of God, which contains the throne of God's glory. Now listen to Deuteronomy 10 and verse 14. Behold the heaven, he's referring to second heaven, and the heaven of heavens, referring to the third heaven, is the Lord thy gods, the earth also with all that is therein. The first heaven. So right there in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 14, we have a similar reference to what Paul shares with the, us about his experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he's referring in Deuteronomy 10 to earth, beyond the earth, and then ultimately where God is. First Kings chapter 8 and verse 27 says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I've built. Or what about Psalm 113 and verse 4? The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. You remember Jesus passed through the heavens when he ascended? Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 says, Seeing then that we have such a great high priest that passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. People live in the first heaven, so to speak, uh, although it's certainly not this mumbo-jumbo about heaven on earth. That's, that's not what I'm teaching in this, and it's not what I mean in any way. I'm just trying to distinguish in the scripture, if you come upon this, these references to heaven and the heaven of heavens and heaven in God's presence, that you don't get totally confused about it. Um, It's the atmospheric uh, heaven in which birds and airplanes fly, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, People have and can explore um, the second heaven. Uh, We see the exploration even now of Mars, and we know that that space extends far beyond what we can even humanly make and survive. Um, and people cannot get, however, in any way to the third heaven And the third heaven is the focus of our series because that's where the throne of God is. That's going to be part of the the new heaven in a recreated way. It's the heaven of heavens where the glory of God and the heavenly host dwell. It is outside of our space and our dimension. There's no rocket ship that's going to take you there. There's only one way you're going to get there. And if Jesus tarries his coming, you're going to have to die to get there. And the only way you're going to get there if he does and you die is if you are in Christ. And we'll come back to that. So the third question is, from where does God rule? God rules from his throne in heaven. The Bible mentions the throne of God or God's throne several times in both the Old Testament and the New Testament we're to think about a throne being a place that is the seat of a king. Jesus called heaven God's throne in Matthew 5 and verse 34. He recalled the statement in Isaiah 66 and verse 1, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Or what about the reference in 2nd Chronicles 18 and verse 18 when Micaiah the prophet said, therefore hear the word of the Lord, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and the whole heavenly army was standing at his right hand and his left hand. Psalm 11, in verse 4, says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne, is in heaven. His eyes watch, and his gaze examines everyone. Now, some people have said that the throne of God is purely figurative, that after all, God is spirit. So if God is spirit and we're to worship him in spirit and in truth, which is accurate, then is the throne of God purely figurative? I believe the throne of God is actually a literal throne that is contained in a literal throne room. Isaiah's vision of God's throne room in Isaiah 6 and verse 1 Says the Lord, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What is this literal throne of God where God dwells in the throne room? Well, the throne of God is a place of authority and power. He is the God who rules over the nations, He does as He pleases, He answers to no one. He does nothing that is inconsistent with his character. He does nothing that is not good. And it's a place where his authority and his power is exerted over all of time and eternity and over all that God has created. The throne of God is a place of incalculable glory and majesty. You remember Jesus ascended and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. The special place of honor. And when we think about the glory and the majesty of God, we often uh, minimize God uh, to make him fit our liking or to fit what our plans are. But the glory of God and his majesty is an overwhelming concept. And part of what makes this glory and majesty such an overwhelming concept is that the throne of God is also a place of holiness. Only the redeemed in Jesus Christ will be able to stand before the throne of God in heaven. The throne of God in heaven is a place of justice. He has prepared his throne for judgment, and the final judgment takes place before a throne. And the throne of God is also a place of grace and of eternal life. We are told that we can approach the place of incalculable glory and majesty with confidence because of the grace of God, that we are invited. This is the thought that should absolutely overwhelm us, just like the experience that Paul had when he had that experience that I think was first person. It should overwhelm us, the fact that not only can we come, but we can come confidently And not only can we come confidently, but we're invited to come that way. And our Father receives us with an everlasting love. You remember in heaven, John saw the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And I don't think that was figurative. I think that was something literal that he was seeing um, in the presence of God. And then the throne of God is a place where one day all of creation is going to bow down before God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Psalm 103 and verse 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. From where does God rule? He rules from his throne in heaven. Now that does not limit God because remember God is omnipresent. God cannot be contained in one place. God cannot be limited to a house of worship that has been made with hands. God was not limited to the tabernacle or to the temple. The pillar of fire in the cloud and then the um, holy of holies were symbols of the presence of God, but they did not limit the presence of God to that place. God is everywhere all at once, and only God can have that said of him. Now, I'm going to give you this closing statement tonight as I come toward a conclusion of of what I want to share with you. A biblical theology of heaven provides a foundation for living so that we are not afraid of dying in what lies beyond this world because we trust God fully. Let me say that again. A biblical theology of heaven provides a foundation for living so that we are not afraid of dying in what lies beyond this world because we trust God fully. So I come back around to this idea that Christians should not fear what's ahead of us. We might fear the actual details of our dying, Or certain things that we might have to endure and persevere through in this life. But we should never fear the presence of God. We should never fear being in heaven with him. And it's a mystery to me why there are professing believers that absolutely live like this world is all there is. Listen, if this world is all there is, we're coming up way short But this is not all there is. God has created this for our enjoyment and for our good and for our blessing. But He's preparing something far better for us in His presence for all of eternity. And if you get your understanding of heaven right, you've got a foundation for living so that you can be prepared for dying and you can be ready for what God has for you. And in the meantime, you can say, Father, I trust you completely. I'll not live afraid. I'll live with faith because I believe what you said in your word. Now, I'm going to come back to this again and again in this study because I think it's important and I don't want to wait until the 12th or 14th week or however many weeks it takes me to get there. Who's going to go to heaven? Only those who repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Only those who trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Only those who have been declared righteous based on the finished work of Jesus. And that says to us, we should not wait to make our preparations for the future. We need to get ready now. Today is the day of salvation. And our faith needs to be in Christ so that we can have this hope. Let's bow our heads together as we pray.